God's word given to us today from John 15, 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a father cannot bear fruit, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and it withers. And the, branch, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The word of the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy, unchanging, inerrant word. We thank you that it meets us, us broken sinners and saints meets us today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would, would come, that it would bring your words of life to our hearts. May you make our hearts fertile ground to hear it, receive it. Lord, we thank you for your servant, Pastor Addison. God, for his reflections and study on this passage. We pray that you would work mightily through him. You give him a humble posture confident standing in the gospel of Jesus to declare the words of, of our life and the life given to the world in him. We pray, God, all these things in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I was reading an article recently. <clears throat> And it was on the good life, which I think is a really interesting topic, interesting um, idea. You know, what is the good life? And one of the things, there's many things I liked about the article, but one of the things that I really liked about the article was that this author was not trying to overly define what she thought the good life was. I thought it was uh, helpful that she posed some questions for reflection, some a little engagement through uh, some ideas that she posed. And so it got me thinking. So one of the first prompt was to write down and define what I thought the good life was. What is my definition of it? And so I spent some time uh, journaling, thinking about that, writing those things down. And then she said, take out a piece of paper or something to write on. And in one part of the paper, put a dot. And that dot represents life not in the good life. And then somewhere else on the paper, draw a star, and that represents life in the good life. And then she said, in between, so however you've arranged it, illustrate what it looks like to get from life not in the good life to being in the good life. Of course, I have very little artistic ability, and so I did my best to draw little stick figures and images and things that represented what I thought it meant to get from not in the good life to the good life. And of course, upon just reflecting on this idea and thinking about the text that we have this morning, 
it dawned on me, life in the good life is life in Jesus. Full stop. In some sense, we could just pray and say amen, and you guys could go have an early brunch. But that's not what we need to do. We need to unpack that a little bit and explain what does it mean that life, that the good life can be found in Jesus? Because that's exactly what he is saying when he jumps on the scene here in his uh, discourse, his, his speakings with the disciples as he's heading off, right? So he's telling them all the, the really important bits before he leaves and sends the Holy Spirit to them. He is telling them here, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. To the disciples, this would have been utterly shocking. (laughs) They would have heard this, and they would have been well familiar with vineyard language. Unlike Cooney, unlike me, the disciples' Jewish tradition was steeped in vineyard language. Of course, it was something that was more common in their area of the world than it is necessarily in our area, and certainly was more common as a job or vocation than it was and is for us today. But still, the, their scriptures, their Bible, the Old Testament that was given to them through God, speaks of vineyard language quite often. Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 7, other places in Isaiah, Psalm 80, uh, Jeremiah 12, just to name a couple of them, they, they speak of this vineyard language. And so when the disciples heard this, they would have had a whole litany, a whole a slew of his examples of words, of ideas that would have hit them. Let's just read uh, uh, one of those. Isaiah 5, if you have a Bible, is a, is a great one. I think it, it gets at what they would have been feeling, what they would have been thinking. So Isaiah 5, start in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. His vineyard being God's vineyard. Oh, my beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. So God did all the hard work. He cleared stones in this fertile ground. He put a choice vine. He put a good vine in there that would grow good fruit, so it had a great beginning. He put a watchtower in the midst of it to protect it from pests and enemies and diseases, things that would want to strike the vine down. And what did he expect? Well, He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? I did everything, says God, to make it fruitful, to make it flourish, to make it be what I intended it to be. And when I looked for it, he says, to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So he goes on, he says, now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I'm going to remove its hedge, it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they not rain upon it. He says, for the vineyard of the hosts of the Lord, Lord of hosts, is the house of Israel. This is God's people. God planted his people. He gave them everything that they needed to flourish, to succeed, to to be and represent him to the watching world. While he thought that it would produce grapes, it produced wild grapes. See, in their rebellion, 
They did not walk in the way that God had outlined them to walk. So every time that we read about vineyard language in the Old Testament, it's like that. It's negative. It's not a, a shining picture of what God wanted from his people. Instead, it's the complete opposite. And so when the disciples hear Jesus say, I am the true vine, their minds cannot handle it. They don't have a category for the Son of Man, for Jesus, the Messiah, to call himself the true vine. To talk about vineyard language in a positive light. Jesus flips the script on them and says, look, everything that you were called to be and were not, I am that. You were called to lead my people, to shepherd them, protect them from enemies, and you did not do it. You devoured your own, but I am the good shepherd. You were called to point to Yahweh as the way, as the one with whom there is life and life abundant, as the creator of all things, and you did not do that. I am the door and the way, the truth and the life, says Jesus. You were called to live a life in this vineyard, to produce good fruit, to flourish under the Lord, to press into this relationship, which is the only way you can produce fruit. And you were not, you were wild grapes. But I am the true vine, says Jesus. I am everything that you could not be. And that is good news for the disciples and for us. So because in today's passage, we see we are connected to this good news. We have life in the vine. So the good life that we are all seeking, all of us have a definition of what the good life looks like. All of us would, would list numerous things that appear to be the good life. And what needs to be at the center is Jesus. See, in Jesus is the good life. And so today, you can see in your bulletin, this is how things work in my mind. It has changed. Jesus is the vine, and the good life is found in Jesus. The good life is found in Christ alone. And so let's just ponder and look at what John uh, what Jesus has to say through John and through this I am statement about what does the good life look like? And what are some characteristics of the vine, of Jesus himself? And one of the things I love about this passage, and this is one of my favorite uh, passages and chapters in, in the Bible. It's kind of a funny statement to say. It's like saying I, I, don't have a, I have a favorite kid. It's like I love all my kids the same, but this one is my favorite. I really do love this passage one of the things I love about it is that we can look at this from many different perspectives. We can look at it from a first-person perspective as someone who's walking with Jesus. Say, I trust in Jesus. Does my life look like this? This is what I can expect as a follower of Jesus. And then from a third-person perspective, someone who does not walk in with Jesus, someone who does not trust in God, maybe doesn't even believe in God, can look at this and say, ask a couple of questions. Is this what I see 
and Christians around me? And does this sound like the good life? Does this sound like something that brings fulfillment and meaning and purpose and joy, happiness, all the things that I would categorize as the good life? And of course, this is just a snippet of what Jesus says the good life looks like. But let's look at that snippet. Two things. We can expect pruning in Christ, and we can embody, we can live a particular way by inviting in Christ. So we can expect pruning. I mean, this is abundantly clear as you just read through the text. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. I mean, so right away, Jesus begins to explain what life in the vine looks like. As branches, those walking with Christ, we can expect to be pruned. We can expect for aspects of our lives to be cut back. So I'm unfamiliar, totally unfamiliar with sort of the, the vineyard life and what it looks like to, to grow vines and to make them produce choice grapes for, for wine, if you will, just use the analogy. And so, had to do some reading. But I mean, I've been around church long enough to hear sort of examples and snippets of it. But, uh, you know, what they do when they are cutting back the vine is you've got the main stump, you've got the main shoot, the main bark, branch, wood, and they cut off little bits of it after the season is over so that other parts can produce better fruit. So, if you don't do this, what happens? Well, uh, like our scriptures say, you get wild vines or wild grapes, which are grapes that are small in size and do not taste very good. They're not things that you would want to either eat or put in a wine press. And so, by the act of pruning, by cutting back, they're allowing for the vine to grow better fruit so that it may be enjoyed. See, just like how vines need good soil, how they need the absence of things like weeds and pests and diseases, how they need good air, they need a vine dresser who is willing and able to cut back aspects of it that are not good. For the vine, that produces good fruit, which is pleasing. For you and I, it produces good fruit, which glorifies God, which brings about the kingdom of God here on earth. To the fruit that is produced is the fruit of the Spirit. They oftentimes in, in the scriptures or in our lives, we actually talk about what fruit is or fruitful talking, right? So you have a meeting with an employee or your boss and it goes well, your spouse or your friend might ask you, how was your meeting? Well, it was fruitful. It was good. Or you meet with a, a teacher to talk about your kid in school you get out of the meeting, you say, well, that's a pretty fruitful conversation. And what do we mean when we say it was fruitful? Well, we mean some form of good news, good advice, good uh, production came out of whatever it was that we were talking about. Something good came of it. And the same is true for the fruit that's produced in our life. It is something good. It's something enjoyable. It's something worth pressing into and worth repeating. Of course, Jesus here in a chapter or so is going to explain to the disciples how he's going to send the Spirit to them. 
Because the Spirit is the one who's going to dwell with them throughout time. He's the one who's going to work in their life because Jesus is going to come. He's going to do his work. He's going to die and he's going to leave and he cannot be with them. And it's better for them that the Spirit comes. Why? Because the Spirit will dwell within God's people. So it only makes sense for us to ask, okay, if this is true, if the Spirit is the one that's inside of us, then it's the Spirit who is producing this fruit in us. Well, because we certainly couldn't do it on our own, as Jesus says. We just continue on through the passage. It says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot, cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you. So the fruit has to come from somewhere. We use the language of the fruit of the Spirit. This is the fruit that the Spirit produces in the life of a believer. It was in our, uh, our liturgy already. You saw it. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And against such things there is no law. This is the fruit that is being produced on the vine. So when we find ourselves in Christ and we are looking to live the good life, we will see this fruit. And if you're like me, you read through that list and you think, well, I'm certainly missing some of those. (laughs) I'm certainly missing some patience as I deal with my three-year-old who wakes up in the middle of the night at 2.30 a.m., Certainly missing some joy as I maybe read news or hear about things in my community and neighborhood. Maybe missing aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. You see, but it's not singular. It's not like I, will, I need to grow in my patience. If I don't have patience, I probably don't have kindness. If I don't have joy, I probably don't have gentleness. These things grow together. And the promise here is that through pruning, through our lives being cut back, Jesus will produce fruit in our lives. He will produce more joy, more patience, more kindness, more faithfulness, more gentleness, more self-control. All at once, simultaneously, it will all happen. See, Jesus is the source of this fruit producing. That's what we learn about the vine in this portion of the passage, is that the source of all of that growth comes from Jesus. And this is good news for you and I, because as we saw in our text, we cannot produce our own fruit. We cannot make ourselves better. There's lots of self-help books out there. But at the end of the day, they're honing in on one aspect of your life. And while they may produce some, some moral goodness, some uprightness, they cannot cure you of sin. They cannot produce these, this, this example, these, these examples of fruit all at once. Only in a life in Jesus will you see that sort of growth through pruning. And it's not just pruning that happens. We know that you and I find our life in the vine as a, as a gift in and of itself. Romans 11 highlights this truth for us. 
verse, starting verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off in you, although a wild offshoot, so if you were a Gentile, one not originally in uh, the Jewish camp or heritage, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. We've been grafted in. We've been attached to the vine. So all the things we just talked about can only happen because Jesus grafted us into the vine. And do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. In other words, it is not us that gives life to the vine. It is the vine that gives us life. So when we are in Christ, we can expect to find the good life through pruning. You know, there's been a couple of times in my life, you know, I don't know if I would have categorized them as pruning before, but as I've reflected on this, there were times in my life where I was brought really low. Very difficult situations. Again, this is contextual. This is difficult for me. It might be a different thing for you. Just one example of that, when I was in uh, seminary in 2013, I was just beginning. I had finished summer Greek, and so here I was, you know, pie in the sky. I thought I knew everything, so I just knew a few Greek words. I could string them together here and there. And right before the semester started, I went on a bike ride, because I love bike riding, and literally not even about a half a mile in, I got hit by a car on my bike. And I broke my arm. It was rather painful. Uh, the worst part of it was actually riding in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Was the, the guy was trying to hold my arm in the ambulance, and he asked me how I was doing. I said, you know, I, I just would rather not say anything. I'm not doing so hot. <laughs> so get through all of that, and then I got to start seminary with a broken arm two days later. And let me just tell you, trying to learn some of these concepts uh, while I'm taking pain medication, so it clouds my head and I can't think straight, trying to write papers uh, with one hand on a computer or handwriting, but the paper is moving along the desk and I got to kind of move it back over and write and then move it back over. It was tough. I had to rely on other people. I had to rely on their notes. I had to rely on them to write my papers for me. It's people I don't even really know yet. I had to have my wife, Lynette, help me put a shirt on. Couldn't drive myself anywhere. It was tough. And then again, this is all in context. This is, was a hard season for me. So you just wonder, you ask questions like, have I done something wrong? Did I do something to upset God? Is this some form of punishment for who I am? But the gospel answer is no. No, you didn't do anything wrong. This is how God works in our lives. He works through difficult situations. He works through times where we are brought low. Of course, it's going to look different for you. All of us have our own story in which God has brought us low and has worked in our life. But Jesus says, I am producing more fruit, better fruit, choice grapes in your life by cutting away aspects of who you are, by helping you see how selfish you may be, as in my case, how self-reliant you may be, as it was in my case. Certainly there is aspects of this that are going to be true in your life as well. We can expect pruning. 
that we need to embody abiding. We need to embody abiding. The language in this chapter is just so beautiful. It gives us a picture of what it looks like to to remain in this good life, to be in this good life with Jesus. We'll just start in verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Just pause for a moment and talk about that phrase, already you are clean. It's a quite remarkable statement that Jesus makes to the disciples. Remember, he's talking straight to them. He's no more or less about 24 hours away from being betrayed and arrested. And he looks at the disciples fully aware of that situation and all the mistakes that they have made over his ministry. He knows they're sinful. He knows Peter's going to deny him. He knows Judas's heart. What does he say? He doesn't say, get it together so you can be clean. No, he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. You are clean because you believe in me. You are righteous because you trust in me. You are beautiful because you find yourself in a relationship with me. What a wonderful statement for you and I. What a thing to delight in. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to try and go and scrub the sin off of our hands or out of our minds. When we are in Christ, we are viewed as wonderful, as righteous, as clean because of the work that Jesus has done. I mean, I don't know about you, but if there's anything that I take away from this passage, it is that verse. That I am clean because of the word that Jesus has spoken to me. And he continues on, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire. I mean, Jesus makes it abundantly clear. The life in him is a life that produces fruit, and life outside of him is a life that will be gathered and thrown into the fire. And so we abide in Christ. We rest in him. This is that language that we like to use often up here from Francis Schaeffer. Just, you know, Google him, read some of his stuff. It's really good work. We've got some, some of his stuff in our libraries. But he says that this is an example of active passivity. That we actively take the steps to rest in Christ. But the, that work, the abiding work, It's passive work. There's nothing we do to earn that. It's like sitting in the chair that you're sitting in right now. You chose to sit in that chair, but you're not doing anything right now. That chair is keeping you up. Its legs are supporting you. This is union with Christ. This is the theological idea that we like to tag to this. That we abide in Christ. We sit in Christ And he abides in us. There's lots of work that's been done. Lots of pages have been written on this idea, union in Christ. So, you know, I don't really try and sum all of that body of work up. Uh, I won't do it justice. But I really do think that John 15 is the best place to, to understand the idea of what it means to be in union with Christ. 
Let me just try and give you an example of what it might look like in our lives. So if you're married, that is a union. You are committed to one another. So you uh, take vows to say that I'm going to forsake other men or women, that I'm going to commit my life to this person through uh, sickness, through death, through uh, all of the things that life wants to throw at us. Which means that as you uh, unite yourselves to one another, as you go through things like child rearing or raising children, I don't think people call it child rearing anymore, as you raise children together, as you go through the death of a family member or the loss of a job or the diagnosis of a cancer, uh, you together work through that. You support one another. You give life to one another through those difficulties and through those highs. And this is a crude and not perfect example of what it means to be united in Christ. That through our life, he is supporting us. He's fueling us. He's giving us everything we need to walk through this life. We just abide in him. We rest in who he is. We delight in that goodness. I mean, it really is a beautiful picture. And ultimately, it is one that is hard to believe. Because if you're like me, you just think of all the different ways that you have wronged people or God. And you think, man, I, I got to clean myself up. Like the text says, I don't have to do that. But it's still our human nature to want to produce something to show God that we are worthy of this relationship. It's like Peter is a great example, actually, of this. When Jesus is telling the disciples that he's got to go somewhere, this is earlier in John, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a room. I'm going to go off and do this. Peter's like, hey, Jesus, I'm going to come with you. And Jesus like, you guys can't come with me. Peter's like, no, I'm going to come with you. I would die for you, Jesus. And I have to think with some irony, he's probably chuckling inside, knowing that Peter is going to deny him three times when Jesus is at his lowest when he is on trial, Peter distances himself from Jesus. And then what does he do when he realizes that Jesus' words were true, that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed? Well, he ran. He was ashamed. He avoided Jesus. That is what we do. We avoid when we feel like we, when we're before God. When we are ashamed of something, we avoid. When we offend, we avoid. But Jesus is saying, you do not have to avoid God. Because I've stepped into that place for you. Through my life, through the death where I took on your sins, all those things that you are trying to avoid God with, I took those. I went to the cross and experienced the wrath of God for you. Therefore, you have been made righteous. So that when God looks at you, you are welcomed and delighted. A truth that it took Peter just a little bit of time to figure out. After Jesus died and was raised and was going through the last days, the disciples had no idea what to do, and so they just went on doing life as they had done it before. Peter's out fishing, and he sees Jesus on the shore he doesn't avoid him, but he puts on his cloak and he swims to Jesus. I don't know if any of you have ever swam in a lake or a sea. 
It's not easy. You do that fully clothed with two robes on? Sounds terrible. Peter swam to Jesus because he knew at that moment, I am delighted in my Lord. I am welcomed in. This relationship with him is the most beautiful thing that I could ever have. He falls on his knees and he calls him Lord. Friends, that is a picture of the good life. We're delighted in. We're loved. We're cherished. We're called beautiful. Despite the messiness of our lives, despite the mistakes we're going to make later today, despite the sins that we have, in a life of repentance and trusting in who Jesus is, we are cherished. This is a picture of the good life. Through difficulties, through hurts, through habits, through sins, through the wrongs that we commit, by abiding, by choosing to sit and rest in Jesus above anything else, above anyone else, we find the good life. We find a life that has the most meaning, the only meaning, purpose, community, all of those things that you and I are longing for in this world are found in the true vine in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth, this truth that only in Christ, only in Jesus, can we have any taste of a good life. Help us, Lord, to fall on our knees, to trust in you, to see that Jesus is everything. He is better than anything else. That a life in Christ is better than anything else this world could ever offer. Help us, Lord, to feel that, to see that, that we would boast in Christ And as that hymn says, that all the vain things that charm me the most, that I would sacrifice them for a life in Jesus. Lord, may that be true in our lives as we continue to worship you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.